For more than 25 years, Pope Benedict XVI has lived in Rome, but his roots have always been firmly planted in his beloved Bavaria. How did his Bavarian upbringing shape his views on faith, salvation, evil, and the church? What lasting influences does it have on his papacy? Join our special guest, Brennan Purcell, author of Benedict of Bavaria, for an intimate look at the Holy Father and his homeland. I'm Father Michael Scanlon, Chancellor of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. talking about Pope Benedict, Benedict of Bavaria. We have our regular panel here, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology and author, and Dr. Scott Hahn, professor of biblical and spiritual theology, author and director of uh, St. Paul's Center here, and our special guest, Dr. Brennan Purcell, who is a history professor at DeSales University and a Newman Fellow of the Center of the Study of Catholic Higher Education. But more important for this program, a frequent visitor to Bavaria, fluent in German, Purcell's biography of Pope Benedict, which is the focus of today's program, uses mainly German sources, along with his own visits to towns, churches, shrines of Benedict's youth. So, Tell us, more than once, Joseph Ratzinger, now Holy Father, Pope Benedict, has said, my roots remain Bavarian. My heart is Bavarian. Tell us about Pope Benedict's childhood, how Catholic was his upbringing, and how did Bavaria work into all this? Right, how Catholic his upbringing. Very, <laughs> very, and in a very positive kind of way. I mean, for him and his family, that's where it starts, obviously. The family is more of a biological unit, more than a social unit. It was a community of prayer. Um, his parents were very simple people. His father was a country constable, kind of a small town police officer. His mother, a professional cook. And um, there, was, there was prayer frequently throughout the day. There was frequent mass attendance. And where he grew up in the southern eastern portion of Bavaria, this is not a wealthy, swanky metropolitan region. It is rural. It is humble. It was poor in his day. And it isn't rich to, to this day. And where he, he mainly grew up in a series of towns, all more or less within one full day's walking distance of Altating, which is the holiest Marian shrine in all of Germany. And that for him is like his spiritual basis as well as his family basis, it's his social and cultural context. Well now, how does this, from your perspective, form his Catholic worldview or his religious perspective? Well, we don't want to overdo this, right? It's right. not like there's Bavarian Catholicism versus American right. versus Southern American. Maybe some people would say that. Um, we, maybe we don't want to go there. But for him, there's Catholicism, there's scripture, there's revelation, there's the tradition of the church. But it has more to do with kind of um, style and choices and, yeah. and, and uh, ways of looking at the world, his own preference for Baroque art and for the wonderful, wonderful tradition of church music. He's a great fan of Mozart and Schubert and such things. But yes, he grew up in this Baroque Catholic milieu. It's very important to him. 
But one other, before we open this up, the fascinating part is you give this all smooth, sign, even romantic view of things, and at age 16, he's called into the military service. Yes. In Germany. Yes. In Nazi Germany. Yes, exactly. Well, how, how does all this happen? Well, you're talking about history, and this is one of the, there are many par paradoxes that really shaped his life. But yeah, you've got to realize he, he grew up in this, in this very Catholic um, region of southern and eastern Germany, but during a time in which Nazism, this, this ideology, really of lies, it's an ideology of lies, that, that took over the whole of his state and, and, and all institutions and society itself. It made its way into the church, famously with those Nazi interpretations of who Jesus was. Right? Are you ready for this? Right? Jesus Aryan. was an, an Aryan! Right! Fighting <laughs> right. against the Jews. I mean, totally inane. But right. that, that is what was out there. And his family was, was really um, a guard against it. And his education. Well, his father in particular uh, yes. resisted this Nazi current. Uh, totally. And the Pope uh, 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 confesses that uh, with a kind of uncanny uh, uh, clairvoyance, had seen in Hitler something of the Antichrist. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there was something very calm in his father, the way you describe him. Uh, but at the same time, there's almost an apocalyptic outlook on what this madman can do to the church, to the whole of the people. You know, one other thing that Benedict of Bavaria does for me, it reminds me, as an American, that Germany is not a monolith, the way it's often presented yeah. in Hollywood. Yes, indeed. Right, right. I mean, we, we, we think of well, Germany and we associate... Well, and all that all going, going to. Right. Yes. We associate it with Berlin and with the Prussians and yes. with the industrial north. Yes. We completely lose sight of yes. what Catholic culture, going back to yes. the broken long before that, right. too, right. is down south in Bavaria. And we're not just being partisan. Professional historians, Ian Kirchhoff, I think, cut his teeth. He's, he's the famous author of biographies of Hitler. Cut his teeth on looking at public opinion and popular dissent. I think that's the title of the book. In southeastern Bavaria. And through research, he showed that this group of people were really resistant to Nazism. Yeah, and he has many sources from local Nazis complaining to their authorities, saying, these people won't use the Hitler greeting. They won't say Heil Hitler. They keep saying Grüß Gott, which is their dialectical greeting, which yeah. it really means, may God greet you, or greetings yeah. in God's name. Um, they were told to not hang out any papal flags, yellow and white. They were told no more processions. They were told all wow. nuns out of the schools. Wow. They resisted all of this right, right. for as long as they could, but it was still there. We shouldn't, we shouldn't try to build southeastern Bavaria into a kind of island. In and and in fact, I mean, some uh, gestures of resistance would have proved not only futile, but uh, fatal. Uh, uh, Ratzinger indicates that he had a cousin, and when, when Ratzinger was 14, the cousin was carried away because he had Down syndrome, and he was liquidated. So yes. I mean, there, there's a limit to what you can do. Yes. You know, the, the extent of the descent uh, can only go so far. I, I, I'm struck by the irony. Here's a guy conscripted into a German army, which is currently occupying uh, Poland, where his predecessor uh, is sort of victimized yeah. by, exactly. by this yeah. hateful, odious ideology. Yeah. They both lived through it, of course, um, John Paul the Great under different circumstances. Yeah. But they both know what it is. They're personally right. acquainted with it. But isn't that why the media gets all upset about his Nazi background. Yeah. That they contrast, they're taking, Pope John Paul was the yeah. victim, and now here's what the, the Panzer Pope. coming. The yeah. Panzer Pope, the God's Rock. What a, wow. Just the other day, I was reading an article written by a professional historian that referred to the capacious kennels of God's Rottweiler. What, what, what an appalling kind of <laughs> ridiculous um, 
exaggeration, but I think that the media influence, they've gotten it completely wrong. That's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. And I think it's really kind of melded, melted into um, popular consciousness. I've heard, of a, I've heard of a lot of people who have said, oh yeah, yeah, his Nazi background, fine, he wasn't an enthusiastic Nazi. But that's where he gets his authoritarian yes. tendencies, which I think they get completely wrong. Right. Completely right. Wrong. Yeah, I mean, the, the Nazi does eclipse the Bavarian. You know, because when we as Americans think yes. German, we think Nazi, of course. it's the time period, and yes. look, there were some links. Yes. But what this book does is it shows that it's actually a dialectic. I mean, yes. it, it is a stark contrast between what he was as a Bavarian Catholic and who the Nazis were. And the drama has to really play out, but only as you separate these two and realize this was the drama and the tragedy of his yes. own experience. And you mentioned his father, and you, you mentioned his father yeah. had, had, had a... The government clear connection, right. The government connection. So here he is, he's supposed to be the, the civil officer in charge of law and order, but standing by and letting the brown shirt thugs pummel the priest who says yeah. things about Hitler, right. he right. would come home and let it all out. Yeah. Right. Let, yeah. Young Joseph Rothstein remembers tirades yeah. from his father saying, they're going to ruin everything. The, the wow. Hitler is really tied in with Antichrist. And then his father knew that war was coming in the late 1930s, and that's why when he, he took his retirement, he then moved out of the towns and into the little farmhouse yeah. that the Pope remembers so well. How, how does all this influence Pope Benedict on evil? You know, what's evil and how do you look at it and find it? Yeah. He knows what evil is. Is. He didn't grow up in cushy American suburbs where supposedly everyone's nice and there's yeah. no evil and people are very PC and, and, and everything's fine. He, he knows what can happen when a civilization, when a well-organized state with a disciplined populace comes under the influence of lies. Lies that say that um, nothing is really true except for what the party says it is or what popular opinion says and, and, and as articulated by the party. To wow. Yes. Uh, and, and this descent into barbarism is, yes. is, in fact, organized and sustained by this immense military state, this yes. machinery yeah. of power. Uh, I mean, we, we, have no, we have no precedent uh, for assimilating a datum like that. It's altogether new. And it's curious that both John Paul II and Joseph Ratzinger both understood from the inside. Evil was not an abstraction. Yes. It, it, I mean, it became, it was banal. It was everywhere. It was yes. a commonplace. It was absolutely But they didn't deny its, its, yeah. its horror. And, you can go back and reread many sections of Pope Benedict's earlier writings and recognize that when he's discussing truth and freedom, it isn't theoretical. You know, it is yeah. something he has experienced. Yes. And when he also interacts with the narrative, the truth claims are really but a, sub you know, a, a, a subtext for a will to power. Mm -hmm. you know, he's also experienced that. But you know, what I'm grateful for in reading this book and really coming to grips more and more with his own family upbringing, the, the devotional climate and culture of that area was that the good, though it is not going to be as public, it's not going to be as obtrusive as the evil, is stronger, though quieter. You know, when you recognize that his own family life, in the midst of all of this evil, in his own liturgical experience, yes. you know, this is his, you know, when he describes the, the goodness of God and the truth of our faith, it is something that he lived for years and years under the most adverse circumstances yeah. so that his narrative of this is so profound, yeah. much more than somebody who just has the book knowledge. Yeah. You're absolutely right about this, but at the same time, we shouldn't say, we shouldn't um, depict the Pope's family as being kind of a circled bunch of wagons, especially in, in terms of liturgy and faith. 
Bavarian Catholicism is out there. It's That's public. Right. It's emblazoned on, on, on um, farmhouse walls. It's in little <laughs> niches in every town. Church bells ring all the time. And I'm telling you, there was, there was a community commitment to it. This little story I have to tell. This happened in his town, Traunstein, in the middle of the war, when the Nazi government was finally able to shut down many uh, local yeah. um, church institutions, ecclesiastical institutions, and, and use them to, to house prisoners. Of, um, um, uh, wounded soldiers and such things. They, that's when they decided to take the crucifixes out of the minor seminary and out of the gymnasium, the high school. And um, so they did that. A local farm woman with seven kids, with I believe her uncle, her, her, um, her husband and her cousins and her eldest son, all fighting in the war, walked into the offices that's, and took all the crucifixes away and went back in and hung them up in the school. <laughs> With and, impunity. Um, with wow. impunity. And the, the, the man who, who told this in, in an interview said um, there was a discussion whether they, should, whether they should send her to Dachau. And the local mayor, a Nazi party member, said, yeah, my woman with seven kids all fighting in the war, it's just crucifixes. And they let it go. Right. Yeah, so you, you could right. resist. Right. You could right. to some extent. Yes. But there was always that threat of if your truth didn't agree with yeah. Hitler's, yeah. then you were an enemy to the cause and you could be... Yeah, I, I, I like uh, your take on Baroque Catholicism. It, it's not something private. It's no, not marginal no. to the life of the people. It, no, it's it, cultural. It's public. It's yes. sort of in your face. Yes. But everybody loves it. Yes. Uh, I mean, right. the Corpus Christi processions. Yes. I mean, Ratzinger uh, writes glowingly about yes. that in uh. Feast of Faith. Uh, it, it's as if Jesus were, were a, a foreign dignitary who exactly. would come on a state uh. visit. Right. And, and we pull out all the stops. Exactly. And we celebrate this. It's Fireworks. Especially in Corpus Christi, we're not trying to separate church and state. Christ comes yeah. to the smallest village as a head of state, as the head of the world, head of the universe, right? And he's welcomed, welcomed with, with 21 gun salutes right. and things like that. I remember spending a week in Bavaria and going to these churches and coming away with the sense that the supernatural was so natural. Yes. And it was just a part of their life. Yes. And, it, you know, it, it, it is not state politics so much as it is deeper culture. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I like to make the point that my, my great friend Fritz Wilhelmsen used to make about the Baroque. It's not a symbol of reality. It's an explosion yes, of reality. A festive one. The, the, fest, yes. yeah, the ah, sense yeah. of festivity. Yeah, life is to be celebrated. Yeah. I mean, that's why Ratzinger is so drawn to Mozart. You know? Exactly. Especially in the, in the later Baroque churches. I mean, come on. I think we all agree that there's nothing more beautiful and remarkable and wonderful and joyful in the world than a baby. Right? Come on. I mean, what, what brings yeah. more joy to people than yeah. babies? And these churches are festooned with babies. They're like, they're hanging all over yeah, the place. Stucco, churches. little cute right, fat right. things. I oh mean, they're my. just, they're wonderful. And so, and, 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 and it's delightful. It's yeah. really the whole thing. Yeah. So this is the world that he grew up in. Yes. A kind of cocoon of religiosity. Well, Again, we get that cocoon, right. no, that no, image of being closed right. off. Yeah, I mean, get... on the outside, things are happening. But there is something like an oasis here, you know, in God's yeah. providence, what John Paul experiences in Poland oh, yeah. in Catholic culture and what, what Ratzinger experiences in Bavaria. I mean, you're hard-pressed to find other areas of Europe right. where you could form popes more profoundly, more holistically yeah. than that, you know. Right. Yeah. And, and as he himself points out, when, when, he, when he was ordained priest and then moved into his first position as a chaplain in a Munich suburb, this was, I think, 1951-52, then he rapidly realized that, oh, there's a huge disconnect between the uh, lived faith and then, right. and the kind of, probably the faith of his family and the faith of the scholarly world. But that's not cause for throwing in the towel. That, right. That's cause yeah. for serving with, with all the more enthusiasm and love. Right. Yeah. Being Bavarian, I think, helps him not give up hope for re-Christianizing Europe. But I don't know many other places where you could grow up and retain that hope. 
Of course, it's not helpful that Adolf Hitler came from Bavaria. Uh, uh, he didn't. Oh, he, he came from across okay. the river oh, from Austria, not too far away. That's but, a big right. difference. But he did leave Austria and he did fight in the Bavarian... He was imprisoned. Unix Butch, the Bavarian colonel and all of yeah. that. And he well, did take on citizenship. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Pope Benedict as theologian, as defender of the faith. How did he get formed? How important yeah. is that? Stay with us. In his Milestones memoirs, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger shared, We lived in the triangle formed on two sides by the Inn and the Salzach rivers, whose landscape and history marked my youth. I breathed the Baroque atmosphere ever since I was a child. I would say that the classes here are very rigorous because it's not just about repeating the information back to the professors about applying our faith and applying the lessons to current events, to different social problems. Franciscan University is definitely a challenging academic environment. It's unlike any other Catholic university out there. We're not just going through the motions. We evangelize in the community, do service for those in need. There's even weekly sidewalk counseling and prayer at an abortion clinic in Pittsburgh. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic. talking about Benedict of Bavaria, obviously Pope Benedict, but, but we're talking indeed about his roots and all that formed him and how to really understand his background with Dr. Brennan Purcell, who's written the book Benedict of Bavaria. Let's talk now, <coughs> Brennan, about the, um, his, he is theologian. How did he get formed? How did he rise to this brilliance? Uh, as a young priest, he seemed to have moved very quickly. He moved very quickly indeed. He had a classical German humanistic education. He was educated by a number of um, really terrific theologians that he remembers in very glowing terms. If you're, if you're really talking about his intellectual formation, I, I really have to recommend, not my book, but um, Milestones, which is his autobiography that he wrote, in, I think, in the 90s. And he ends it in, in 1977. That's really almost a Bildungsroman. That, that's really kind of the story of his intellectual development. But, um, so he goes into that into great detail. Um, I do want to point out one thing, though, that, that he learned rather early. And that, that's a, a commonality that he shows with John Paul the Great, that dialogical personalism, yeah. right? A revolting, a revolting term. But you know that wonderful uh, yeah. philosophy that all of us go through life as an I, everybody, mm. and we encounter yous. Yeah. And so one thing that he's always talked about, it fills his writings and his speeches, is that how we need, to, we need to save our eyes from themselves. We need to break the eye out of its shell and then move into the world of use. Just, just little things like that. Well, I had to, just so that we have a transition from the first segment, Yes. he seems to grow up as a pious kid in this yes. nice town. Everything's flowing and simple and together. And boom, he's a theologian. Yes. Uh, how did, how did that transition happen? What happened on his life? Well, he studied amid ruins. I mean, you know, Germany was ruined and, and Mon uh, Munich was, was blown to smithereens, but there was great energy, in it, especially in his seminary in Freising. There was a very large class of men, some who were 40 years old, some were very young. Um, he and his brother entered together and they had this, this sense, the, the German word is Aufbruchstimmung, this idea we need to, we need, really need to get up and go and really save the world. It just kind of, wow. and, and, um, and uh, not necessarily make, re yeah, well, make reparations for wrongs and also really help, help healing to, to happen. So that was, that was a driving force for him. Brilliant, brilliant kid. People who knew him at the time 
time didn't really notice it so much. They called him Bücherratz because he always had a pile of books that he was carrying mm. around. They said he was always in the library or praying How in the chapel. How did he get to the Second Vatican Council? Was he Periti or what? He, he was, was a Peritus. So just very quickly to sum this up, as he finished his education, um, uh, the cardinal said, oh, no, 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 you're not moving into parish service. You're going right back into academia, which is where mm. you belong. And in almost half no time, he, he got his dissertation done. His dissertation was accepted as a dissertation due to an essay contest judgment. Right. After that, if he, just passed, if he just passed his oral exams, then wow. he'd get a doctor. Right. And then yeah. he wrote his Habilitation, which mm. is basically his second dissertation that you have to do in the German right. system. And he did it also very, very uh, relatively quickly and had um, a major struggle there. But even still, when he finished that, he was the youngest fully tenured professor in all of Germany yeah. in the 50s. And then he moved up to the University of Bonn and came into contact with Cardinal Frinks, who said, this is someone that I want to advise me at the Second Vatican Council. And so, so he, he was a peritus to yes. Cardinal Bonn. That's he when I also, first heard of him, of course. He was also doing work in these dissertations that proved to be very significant because you know his first dissertation is on Augustine. Exactly. The people of God, the house of God, you yes. know. So the ecclesiology and the, the rootedness in the, the fathers and in scripture as Augustine was, and then to move from the patristic to the medieval, Bonaventure. Yes. And how you know, theology consists of doctrine that is not just propositional, but it comes to us in the medium of salvation history. Yes. And, and your description of the drama, the struggle, that Professor Michael Schmaus, who was more Thomistic, was yes. resistant to say the least, yes. antagonistic was probably more yes. accurate, yes. And, and, until finally Ratzinger found a way to excise the one portion that had not been torn to shreds yes. and edit that, and that right. becomes, and that's in translation, that's a marvelous, right. yeah. readable yeah, Bonaventure's of theology what book of history. Are you Bonaventure's theology of history. history. Good. I yeah, that was the sure. part he salvaged. Yeah, yes. the controversy with Joachim of Fiore. Right. The right. spiritual. That was the end of his habilitation, right. and when Schmaus said, "Okay, fine," it was his. It was uh, uh, Zürngen, um, Ratzinger's other advice, that said, "Look, look, can you salvage this somehow?" Right. Because a no from Schmaus would have meant would have meant no academic career. That's Meaning, right. no way, you he can't this become close. a friend. came that close. Schmaus said, okay, but it'll take him years. Right. Ratzinger did it in two, <laughs> two weeks. Right. Oh, I my. Mean, exactly. Oh I mean, my. we're talking about a brilliant, brilliant mind. <laughs> and, uh, right. and a Franciscan now, if, I mean, at least we can claim a Pronounced. part there. Yeah. Profoundly Bonaventurian, yes. I mean, yeah. not scotistic yeah. at all. Augustinian. But when you read this, you get a sense, a foretaste of Dei Verbum. When, when, oh, when you read the Vatican II document on divine revelation, you realize this is so much more than just Propositional doctrine. Right. Yeah, it's not a it's not a deposit. Uh, it's right. not like a library of, yeah. of a shelf. And it's, it's an act, an it's, event. And it's a very, very important point. This is what got in, in trouble with Schmaus. It was the idea of what is revelation. Yes. Revelation is the Bible. That's it. One text. No. Uh. Rothstein said, no, it's so much more. It's what happens. It's tradition. It's time. It's God yeah. acting through history. And Schmaus said, oh, modern, subjective. No, well, we've got to uh, And it's that interpretation that really came but out Vatican in the Second II, Vatican Council. Of course. That was so, I mean, that's when I discovered the name Ratzinger, that yes. he was making such an impact. Yes. Uh, so what reforms and renewal things that came from Vatican II was he... Uh, promoting and leading, because in some way he was a Vatican II theologian, and yet yeah. at the same time, he reaches back in tradition. Uh, it's, yeah. interesting. it's interesting the way you yeah. ask that, Father. Um, <laughs> reforms of Vatican II, let's put it this way. Yeah. I've seen the document that Ratzinger wrote to Cardinal Frinks when yeah. he received the circulated yeah. um, drafts of the Council's documents. And he said, the content is fine. The content it's fine. This is entirely in line with scripture and tradition. This is Catholic truth. But the tone, 
The tone he wrote in Latin wow. needs to be so much more pastoral and evangelical. We must engage the modern world. We can't wow. just leave this rarefied in this kind of, wow. you know, um, right. uh, how should we say, Vaticanese. Well, frozen. Exactly. Yeah. So, so when you ask, when you start yeah. talking about Vatican II reforms, I'm wondering if there's also my, an embedded question of, yes, did Vatican II change everything? And Ratzinger's line, and, and yeah. also John Paul II's, is, no, there is no spirit of the council that's meant to take everything old and throw it away that's and right. make all things new. You know, there's and, something here that needs to be brought out, brought out from the 50s, before Vatican II, because Schmaus was suspicious of his work because of how much he privileged history as not just the medium for the message, but as an essential part of the message of the gospel, of divine revelation. That it wasn't just, you know, a, a pipeline through which water flows. History is the context in which God is fathering his people. It's reality. Now, Schmaus looks at that and says, history, that leads to historicism, which is modernism. And what Ratzinger is doing with Bonaventure's help is supplying the antidote to showing that history is not secularized historicism. Right. Right. It is imbued with the divine yes. presence. Yes. And it's only understood properly yes. when through faith you see that presence. Exactly. And so when suddenly you're looking at the rough drafts of the Vatican II documents that he's commenting upon for yes. Cardinal Frinks, you know, he recognizes the scholastic tone that reduces revelation to the doctrinal propositions that must be defended, but the faith can never be reduced to those propositions. Exactly. It's reality. And those propositions convey the supernatural mysteries. Yes. But he had his eyes focused on the mysteries themselves. Right. Exactly. And, and the preparation in the 50s, I think, is the key that unlocks it. I know. In 2008, the Gregorianum published this series of Jared Wicks found all of Cardinal Frink's speeches, and they were translated into English so I could read what Ratzinger, young Ratzinger, had written for the Cardinal. Right, exactly. The, the, the speeches Frink's gave, not yes. the ones he wrote, because no, Ratzinger right. wrote a number of them that Frink's gave. Yeah. Yes, uh, and I mean, yeah. you get that sense yes. of, of continuity and depth, and, and he's not reacting the way Hans Kung was. No. He's penetrating more deeply than the scholastic. And he's trying to argue that history need not lead to relativism. Yes. Exactly. We can yes. all find truth yeah. in. Well, now Ratzinger, he, he yeah. represented the second wave of a movement that had begun back in the 20s and 30s, resource mon, most of whose practitioners were, were French. Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and right. Ratzinger discovered de Lubac uh, as a seminarian in the late 40s. He stumbled upon Catholicism, mm -hmm. this groundbreaking, yeah. pioneering work that recovers yes. a sense of the past, a sense of the church as a community, you know, a communio, yes. and yes. prayer, Absolutely. worship. Yeah. Resourcement. Let's right. return exactly. to the sources if we wish to repristinate yeah. uh, the church. And actually, Father, to bring this back to your question about reforms, yes, there were real reforms coming out of Vatican II. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to give no, the wrong impression about yeah. that. But, but Ratzinger was absolutely in favor of liturgical reform. Yeah. Right. And, okay. and that's, so and he was part of that. So when he was well. prefect of the Congregation of Faith, how did it play out there when he got to that role? Uh, because he saw abuses, of course, and yet, and he's now with this very rich background, having been going down the different streams and uh, investigating them, and right. where does he stand? Can I give then? just a little bit of background? So, so here yeah. he sees Peritus, and he has this soaring academic career, right. and, and then um, Paul VI, Pope Paul VI, who had never met him, makes him Archbishop and later Cardinal of, of Munich and Freising, yeah, which, which is, surprised is, the world, sure. and surprised him totally. Right. He'd never moved in Vatican right. circles right. ever, right. and then he's yeah. called this, oh my God. On, on um, the strength <laughs> of a single book. 
Well, more, let's hope, yeah. than that, but yeah, especially yeah. Uh, Introduction right. to Christianity, things right. like that. Yeah. So he accepts, and then within three, two or three years, John Paul the Great asks him, will you come and please take on this position this that you named? And Ratzinger said, no, I just started here. I right. couldn't possibly leave. So he, uh, I believe the Pope asked again. There might have been a third time. And yeah. at that point, Ratzinger said yes. And this position, to be prefect of the oh. Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, we all agree this is maybe the worst job in the <laughs> church. I mean, the lightning rod position. <laughs> the Grand Inquisitor. Well, it's more like um, the, the Grand Rescuer. An Inquisitor, the, the term Inquisitor right. implies that you're out and you're looking for right. trouble. Right. And you're right. trying to smoke it out and find these people yeah. out. No, it's a passive office. It reacts to things. It receives yes. then cases. And well, the stories that come out of there. Basically, I think if, if I could try to sum it up, um, I think his, his role in that position wasn't so much to stymie doctrinal conflict as to try to pull people uh, back to the right. documents of the Second Vatican Council, right, yeah. which are fully in line with tradition and revelation and all yeah. the rest of it. And, and, and yeah, that's just the nature of that position. You know, there's another no, plot or a subplot after Vatican II. You know, Hans Kung and others recognize this man is a genius, a very uh, young theological mind that is just, you know, exploding with, with wisdom. And so he's brought where? To Tübingen? Yes. And then, you know, by 1968, I believe, what's yeah. happening? You know, and then suddenly there's a kind of awakening to the Marxist and to, to these other elements that really did bring about changes, at least in geography. So he ends up going to Regensburg. Yes. But uh, what's happening in that period in the late All 60s? All right, you know, late 60s in Germany, it's kind of like late 60s in the yeah. United States, Kent mm. State, similar things happen in Germany. Yeah. The whole, there's a whole left-wing movement, the, the, um, the, the Red Army. The Red starts, Army. Yeah, the a, Red a bunch of terrorists shooting capitalists. That's basically what it was. I think Hollywood, no, I'm sorry, not Hollywood. The German film industry just made a film yeah. based on that. I think it was up for a Golden Globe, whatever. Um, uh, this was serious business to them. And Ratzinger was there in the middle of it, as was Hans Kung. Hans Kung rode that wave and rather enjoyed it. Yeah. Of course, you know, he based, his, he based much of his reputation on basically trashing the papacy and just saying that it's medieval <laughs> and should be scrapped. Ratzinger didn't do that. Yeah. He didn't. He, mm. he, he pled for quiet. He said um, in his autobiography he never, never had a problem with students. There's a student who remembers him, and this student was a, a student of theology, <coughs> and it was time for his oral examination. And I believe the student said something like, um, uh, well, Ratzinger asked him, what would you like to talk about? And he said, salvation as liberation, political liberation. And Ratzinger's response was, oh, with a question, question mark. mark. Right? With a, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the guy passed. Right. Yeah. Passed, yeah. right. But anyway, in the middle of that, Ratzinger says, it's time for me to go back to Bavaria. They had just, uh, the state of Bavaria had just founded this, the University of Regensburg. That would be the equivalent of basically someone from Harvard or Yale going to a startup university right. in, in well, We're coming to Franciscan University. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't want to say that. You did. Anyway. Ratzinger said, look, I, I want a dialogue, but you can't talk to people who are throwing Molotov cocktails. He, he, Terror is yeah. not something yes. you reason with. Yeah, I mean, he is really a man of dialogue. He really Really yeah. is. Questions and answers. Not equivocating, but there are times when you break off the discussion. Yeah. So he goes back to Bavaria to his homeland um, and, and um, walks out of the status game, but you know, sets up a wonderful program of his own, and history went from there. Right. Yeah. Well, this is, uh, there's so much here, and there's so much we've got to keep going on. And uh, he insisted on the title Co worker of the truth. Extraordinary. When we come back, we're going to pursue that. Stay with us. In his Milestones memoirs, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger shared, 
The Catholicism of my native Bavaria knew how to provide room for all that was human, both prayer and festivities, penance and joy, a joyful, colorful, human Christianity. Here at Franciscan, students recognize their vocation as a student study and get their work done and be a good nurse or be a good doctor or whatever they want to do and they take it seriously. I feel that the presence of the sacraments on campus, specifically confession and the Eucharist at Mass, helps me develop a really personal prayer life with Jesus Christ, my Savior. That's awesome. The people here are so energetic about their faith and I think Franciscan has the perfect blend of everything. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic. here at Franciscan University, surrounded by our students working the equipment with our regular panelists and with our special guest, Dr. Brennan Purcell. And we're talking about Benedict of Bavaria. We usually call him Pope Benedict, but a fascinating understanding of his roots and how they influence him. And yet at the same time, how quickly he became a world-known theologian and so prominent in terms of speaking for Vatican II and what it was and what it wasn't. So the phrase that he used on himself as bishop was co-worker of the truth. Why did he choose that and what does that mean? When he gave his, his homily, his inaugural or consecration homily, um, he, he stood up and said, der Bischof ist kein Chef. The bishop is not a boss. The bishop is not a CEO. He doesn't pursue his own agenda. He doesn't have his own ideas. And he said the same thing when he became, when he was made Benedict XVI, the Pope. And so that's the idea. He's one of the co-workers. He's a member of a community devoted to truth. Um, um, uh, in later years, someone asked him, this was a couple months later after he was made a cardinal, so how do you feel that now that you're prince of the church? And he said, I, I don't feel like a prince of the church. I don't feel like a cardinal. He says, I come from a small town uh. and I'm used to living with, with craftsmen and farmers. That's where I feel most at home. But yes, co-workers in truth because he looks at himself as one of them, as the member of a group, not someone forging his own path, shaping his own theology in his own and way. That is so different from what the media uh, hit on him. <laughs> you know, oh my God, with yes. Nazism and autocracy yes. and all this, and here he's got this history. As they still do, but it, come on, I mean, that's the nature of the media. Like when, yeah. he, was, when he was visiting Spain, as Pope Benedict XVI, visiting um, Spain um, for a World Family uh, Organization meeting, something like that, um, he gave two little 20-minute speeches, and he was praising the natural family and saying this is very necessary, and the, the coverage on Deutsche Welle was incredible. It said, that, so this was his version. They said this was his version with a million people celebrating this with him. They said, meanwhile, on the other side of town, others celebrated their version. Then we saw this small room about this big with two men getting married with some people clapping, oh, and they got equal air time. Oh, so we have oh. the Pope with his own thing, but these people with their own thing. Oh, so it's, it's, it's oh. ridiculous. Right, right. But you're right. You know, uh, I mean, apart from uh, the books uh, and the, you know, the, the intellectual uh, currents that shaped his thought, his mind, his sensibility. There are also the saints, uh, and Brother Conrad comes to mind, whom uh, 
uh, about whom he knew many things because uh, wasn't he from the same area? Here's a guy who kept uh, the, the door, a gatekeeper, yes. in a Jesuit house for 40 years. His, his simplicity. Capuchin, he was a Franciscan. Oh, yes, another Franciscan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th this, this, is, this is the impact. This is the splash that history finally makes. Yeah. I mean, the, the Pope elsewhere says, look, if you want to prove the the truth of the faith, uh, you need to see the saints, the yeah. witness of holiness and beauty, you know, yeah. natural uh, beauty, uh, the beauty of God. I mean, these things come together. And the Pope went to the canonization of Conrad. Yes, yes. at the ceremony. A small child, yeah. you bring us now back to Alt-Ting, which is so important to the Pope. And just, just a word about St. Conrad from Partham. Um, as, as the Pope himself said, this shows us mm. that maybe the essence of the faith doesn't belong to the intellectuals and the wise and the powerful mm. and, and the technocrats, but wow. to the simple people who really live this. And that, if we could draw that back to an early question of yours, Father, is maybe the best way to, to understand how he saw his service as prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith um, as protecting the faith of the little ones, of the simple mm. people. And many people have lambasted him for that and say, oh, here's this great exalted intellectual claim that no one else can be. And he said, well, that's, but that's just the point. Mm. I think that's exactly no, we, the point. We have in our culture this cult of the celebrity. And it's so, and how? It's so antithetical to mm -hmm. what he, you know, his constitution. You describe you know, the, the sense of peaceful surrender to the calling to the episcopacy. You know, he, he didn't want it. No. He, he wanted to stay put as a professor. He was coming into his own. You know? And you also point out that in the 90s when he's writing his memoirs, Milestones, he stops in 77 yes. because right. suddenly he's given, you know, he's given consent to a calling that makes him a public person. And, and so there's a sense in which he's not going to be recounting his life in the same terms after he is now coming out as a co-worker of the truth. Well, I think we could say earlier he was also a public person, but I, I agree with you completely, but I think he decided, at least if what I remember is correct, uh, to end his biography in 1977 because his life no longer belonged right. to, to him, him. Yes. anymore. He wasn't um, an ordained priest who was pursuing a theological career in academic circles, publishing books on various things. Uh, he was now serving the church as an bishop, as a successor of one of the apostles. So. His, his life is over. His right. story is over. And yet, for us, we'd want the memoirs, volume two, to begin right there, you know. But he doesn't lose a sense of self-possession. If anything, no. it's strengthened in, no. the, in that service to other people. No. And that's and what emerges. And this space salve, when he, when he brings forth the hope there, tell us something about that. Uh, how important you see, you see that encyclical. Uh, space Alvey, I, I just love Space Alvey. What I heard, I don't know if this is true, this might be just rumor, but what I heard is this is one of these things he just wrote on the side. Uh. I don't know where he gets time to do this. But Space Alvey is a wonderful work. It, it touches on so many things. It's also a, a solid work of intellectual history. It talks about the history of hope and how people have changed attitudes towards hope over time. There's many different things we could talk about in that. I'm not sure what topic you'd like to, to take on, Father. I mean, because there's so many things. It's, there's the eschatology well, at the end. You know, we called Pope John Paul II, Pope of Hope, Yes. and now Benedict's Pope. And uh, what is there in their relationship, Pope John Paul okay. and Benedict, we know they were together so much, yes. you know, in yeah. primary advisor, but you, they, you have a, a wonderfully cryptic uh, a fragment or passage uh -oh. in your book oh, no. about uh, 
Pope Benedict saying, I still hear him, I talk to wow, him. There's yes. some relationship that yeah. abides even his physical absence. What, what, what does that mean? Talk about the relationship. Is he channeling? Yes. Look, both, the, both of them are absolutely <laughs> com committed to the basics, yeah. right? To the basics, which is why, especially, especially Benedict XVI writes his first encyclical on love and the next one on hope, right? They're, yeah. they're both proclaimers, they're popes. This yeah. is what they should do. Right, and the right. two of them, um, you asked about the relationship. They, they, they met every week. They worked on all sorts yeah. of things. I, I don't know about you, but when I read John Paul II's um, um, uh, encyclicals, there's, an, there's a lot of phraseology in there that's very yeah. Rothsinger. There's other passages yeah. that are very John Paul II. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, they share a common theology. Right. They share a common philosophy and a common commitment. And, and now um, uh, Benedict has stepped into the same office, and he's, I wouldn't doubt that he looks to John Paul II right, for right. great inspiration. Right. Here yeah. again, you know, you see his roots. He focused on Augustine, who was a realist in understanding history, the city of God and the city of man, and constant spiritual struggle. Yes. Bonaventure overcoming Joachim, who had this view that the, the third age would erupt and the spirit would change the world as we know it and do away with institutions. Utopia. Yeah, utopia. And no, you know, Bonaventure understands history and now Ratzinger understands that hope is going to ripen in the struggles of our own existence. And yet it's not just optimism. It really is a supernatural hope that is just as divine as faith itself. And, and so you, you, you almost get a sense. I, I'm a former Calvinist and so I might exaggerate the providential pre preparation <laughs> that goes into this. But I mean, you get a sense of such continuity yes. from his own life experience, from his own academic research, from his writing and teaching and meditation to now what God had prepared him to do right. as our Holy Father. I think there's another crucial message and it's to us as well, especially in America today. The state can't save you. Right. Yeah, the yeah. state yeah. should not be a source of hope or if it is, it's right. kind of hope that is purely yeah. secular right, and right. material and leads to nothing and ends with death. Yeah. And he knows what that's like. He knows what happens when a state suddenly puts uh, very different versions of hope together. And I think that's one of the reasons why he wrote Space Solid to point out that hope, real hope, kind of eternal hope is tied up with, obviously, with God and love. And so he was, I think he's writing to this, to, to, uh, he, he was writing Space Solidity to counter the argument that, ah, Christianity salvation, that's just an individual affair. Yeah. It's a matter of, of, of private persons and it really leads to nothing. Yeah. And what he's trying to say is that faith is a community, salvation is a community, prayer is a community, and it's authentic hope that then converts hearts right. and minds and leads to improving the Through suffering the too world. and the suffering of Christ. And he plays the, he deals with the suffering. suffering. I mean, hope, hope reaches deeper yeah. uh, and it yeah. encompasses more than, say, mere optimism, which is, which why is just Spesali temperamental. He, and you can't politicize hope. Uh, I mean, that's can, the well, danger. except that we do all the time. <laughs> well, we've just had a very, very successful it. presidential campaign based on it. And, yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. nice stuff. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, from, in Spesali, we go from hope to suffering. Why? Because that is always the counter-argument thrown in the face of Catholics, yeah. especially ever since the Enlightenment when Voltaire yeah. mocked it endlessly in Canteen. Mm. How can there be an omniscient, all-powerful, all-loving God when there's such horrible suffering yeah. in the world? And it's really a pro and he understands that and he's sympathetic to that point of view. He says that's what leads so many people to saying, well then there can't be anything, that history doesn't make sense, that everything is just chaos. Yeah. So he has to argue against that. So that's how we go from hope 
to suffering and to last things, to final judgment. Right. You know, it's clear that he doesn't give up on the state either. He, he would call Catholics to engage in political yes. activity. Yes, You know, but just not to, to stake their utopian or eschatolo yeah. eschatological hopes on this sort of yeah. thing, you know. Yes. Uh, Augustine had such a, an appreciation for what the state can and cannot do. Right. And so I think that translates out because when you read these encyclicals, he gets the, the social teachings of the church across. And he's, you know, and not just in footnotes, but this is really something that is in Deus Caritas Est. Yes. Love has to be translated in terms of social justice. Yes. And the Absolutely. church's teachings have to be appropriate. Yeah. You're right, the, the, my line about uh, the state can't save you, the state is not the source of right. the, He doesn't say that. Right. That's yeah, what I glean from it. But I think we need to hear that in well, our day and age. Play out a little more his agenda that kind of guides his pontificate. You write about that in your book, and uh, we'd be very interested how this comes together for an agenda. I, I really think his agenda is exactly what he said it is in his inaugural mass. It's, it's not to pursue his own objectives, his own line of mm. reasoning. It's mm. to be true to all of Catholic teaching and to right. get that out there. And it, But he's, he makes constant reference to the documents, not the spirit, of the Second Vatican Council and getting that interpretation right. And we should also tie in his service under Pope John Paul the Great in producing the catechism. He right. edited that, right. that wonderful, wonderful book that is, is probably going to serve the church for many, many years. Yeah. He really wants, I think, I think if he has a great wish, he has many great wishes besides the ec ecumenical movement and, uh, and other things, but I think he would love to see greater agreement about what the Second Vatican Council was all about and yes. what it said. And he's totally committed Definitely. to it. And, and that I think, um, it, it's, been, it's been wonderful to see the pontificates of Paul VI Pope John Paul II, and then Benedict XVI, and yeah. trying to kind of calm some of the, the storm on the seas in the wake of the council, which always happens. Every council is, is followed by um, sure. times of you know, when, you have, when you have sure. a, a ministry as a shepherd, I suppose you really have to divest yourself of an agenda daily. At the same time, the fact that he does use his spare time so well, and that he seems to be focusing on Jesus of Nazareth, volume one, and now, you know, volume two, uh, I, I, can't, I can't help but wonder if reading scripture from the heart of the church isn't something that is near and dear to him, whether it's an agenda item or not. Yeah. I mean, what, what the theology of the body has proven to be for John Paul, I, I, I suspect his ecclesial approach to the word of God that is embodied in Jesus of Nazareth might end up becoming his legacy yeah. as well. Allow me to eat my words. I think you're exactly right. Uh, if there's something personal that he is pursuing, yeah. it's his search for the face of God, and as we know from Jesus wow. of Nazareth, it's based on a reading of the gospel. And, wow. and, and this ties back into your earlier question about wow. what he was doing in the Congregation yeah. of the Doctrine of the Faith. He's trying to defend the truth that Jesus of the gospel is the Jesus of history, is the Jesus of the church, and the we don't, need to, make, we don't right. need to make up other versions yeah. according to our needs and whatever. And, and I think that's yeah. also why he published Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth not only as Pope Benedict XVI, sure. but as Joseph Rotzinger. Definitely. And he said, this is personal. There. Everyone, please disagree with me. I'm just wow. putting this out there. Just putting it so out. I love it. That's, that's, I know it. That's the personal. Well, when we come back, we'll have final comments and takeaway things for our viewers what they can do next about all this that you stirred up with stimulation. Stay with us. <laughs> At his first papal audience, Pope Benedict XVI said, My roots remain. I am a Bavarian. 
For 25 years, Franciscan University has led journeys in the footsteps of Jesus Christ and the saints. We go as pilgrims, not merely as tourists, exploring the richness of the Catholic faith and enjoying the laughter, prayer, and support of Christian fellowship. Join Franciscan University on a true pilgrimage that will touch your mind, heart, and spirit. Visit FUSJourneys.com. It's great to see that the mission of Franciscan is reflected in uh, the academic pursuits of its students. I, uh, I'm double majoring in uh, theology and mathematics. It just helps because in math you can see causality, uh, chain of thinking, and things in the material realm that can be applied to the spiritual. Everyone here really wants to be a saint. You know, there's just no better place to grow uh, in my manhood, to grow in my faith, and to grow in my intellect. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic. Well, we come to the final segment on this vast and exciting subject of Benedict of Bavaria, who he is, what formed him as a pope, <clears throat> where he is now and what we can expect. It has enormous uh, aspects to it that could stir our imagination but also deepen our understanding. So we'll first ask Regis to sum up you yeah, see. I'm, I'm a sort of uh, all at sea. Where does one begin? Uh, just plunge in anywhere. It's been an exciting discussion, uh, and you've produced a, a lively book uh, with some uh, superb analyses of, uh, of Benedict and the surrounding world that he comes out of. Uh, you've collected a lot of useful insight from your, 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 your visits to Bavaria. You've also collected a wife Right, uh, and you dedicated <laughs> the book to her. Uh, she was given to me. Okay, yeah, a gift. Yes, uh, yeah. I don't mean to make it sound like a mercenary uh, <laughs> uh, exchange. Uh, I have a wife too. Uh, but uh, what really strikes me about Benedict is the sense of hope that animates his life. It's not just that he writes profoundly about uh, that, that elusive uh, virtue, which is the most creaturely virtue of all. It's what fits us uh, on the way in transit, in parentheses between time and eternity. But he lives it. Uh, it, it really drives his heart uh, and soul. And it is instructive that when he wrote the memoir, it ends abruptly with his appointment, uh, 1977, right? Because now I no longer belong to myself. And he makes an act of trust. I, I trust that somehow Jesus will take care of me. I mean, he has this ambition. He wants to write. He wants to produce a definitive work of, of theology. He wants to leave an impression. And he feels a little bit like Augustine. I'm, I'm, I'm beset with Episcopal duties. How am I going to find the leisure to produce uh, this conclusive body of, of theological uh, thought? And God takes care of him. He's turned out more books since he came to Rome than when he was a, a wonderful academic sedentary theologian in Germany. So God writes straight with crooked lines. Uh, he's been a wonderful pope, and, and I hope he lives forever and, and, <laughs> and, uh, because there is so much good that has come out of his pontificate, and you've captured it so well. Well, well done. Scott, what do you have for takeaway? First, I want to express gratitude to you, Brendan, for writing the book. Uh, I also want to be candid. I, I picked it up and I thought, oh no, another Benedict book. 
You know, yeah. I've read a half a dozen. What more can be said? Well, you know, it's, a, it's an intimate look at the Pope and his homeland. Well, that's a chapter, not a book. But what you did in this book was to show how you can go back and look at almost any area of his life and really look over his work and understand it in a whole new way. And you also come away with an appreciation not only for Pope Benedict and his Bavarian roots, you also recognize, I did at least in reading this book, that uh, you know, the sacramental liturgy of the church, which is reality, has a capacity to form civilizations. You know, just go to Rome and you'll see it. But when you go to Bavaria, you also recognize that it has the capacity to form culture, to form family culture, without wealth, without industry, but also to form saints through prayer, through pilgrimages, through family rosaries, through Sunday mass, and through you know, the hubbub, just the, the, the ordinary work that you do as a husband or a, you know, a wife, a father and a mother, as brothers and sisters, it just, you, know, you see the formula that God has put together in family life at a place like Bavaria, and you realize this is how this man became so great. This is an indispensable part of it. And I'm very grateful because I, I must say this has kind of jumped to the, the top of my list in terms of books that are not just about him but get at his heart. And so I'm grateful for that. Thank you. That is exciting. And uh, Brennan, well done. We're very grateful for your coming and for your book, Benedict of Bavaria. So what final thoughts would you leave with our viewers? I really want people to think hard about this. Um, who do you listen to and why? Mm. The Pope is a true man of dialogue. Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger, asks hard questions and answers them. He doesn't speak out of both sides of his mouth. He doesn't give a lot of vague promises going here. He's not, he just never evades issues. And when there's disagreement, he says, let us just be upfront about where the the, the points of disagreement are, but then go forward and looking at points of consensus. Who do you listen to? That's the question. Um, just, I can only speak from my own experience. He's just been a wonderful guide intellectually, spiritually. It's just, th th there are so many books. I, I wrote this as just an introduction, largely for an American reading audience that doesn't, does, that doesn't know anything more about him than what the media filters to us. And mo most of that is just kind of rubbish. But the books that, we, that uh, you can learn more from him, the wonderful dialogues that are very, very accessible, not, not necessarily some of the harder works of theology, but um, uh, Salt of the Earth, which is kind of dated now, but it's a wonderful way of getting at the person and his thought. Um, and then God and the World, that stunning, that stunding dialogue. It's over a weekend, it's 500 pages, and it wasn't even edited, and you come away saying, my God, how can one person know so much, understand yeah. so much, and be able to explain so much? He's a great genius, and um, he's a source of inspiration. Uh, it's not just that I'm a fan that I call him a great genius. Um, you don't get asteroids named after you for not being <laughs> one. He's a member of the Académie Française, the, the, the oh, French boy. Academy. I don't think they, they, they would ever elect into their ranks um, a dogmatic bureaucrat oh, from right. the Holy See, right? I mean, just, it's just laughable. Anyway, that's who he is. He, he engages in debate um, some of the great um, uh, philosophers uh, of our day. He's, he's worth listening to. Oh. And we don't know how long we have him for, and he speaks clearly, and he speaks from the heart. And, and uh, to me, he's just a great source of inspiration. And I recommend him to, to all people who, who will just take a little bit of time to read and, and to listen to him. Thank you, and thank you for what welcome. you've done. And this is what it is, Benedict of Bavaria, an intimate portrait of the Pope and his homeland. It will give you material and insights that you can't get elsewhere. 
It's very uh, provocative. And for, for me, I'm a great fan of Pope John Paul II, but I've always been intrigued by his relationship with Cardinal Ratzinger. And now we've got Cardinal Ratzinger as the Pope, and it's still the connection with John Paul II is so exciting. I mean, I think that there's going to be literature or dramatizations or whatever is going to come later on about the two, the two popes and how they did it and how they interacted. And uh, so don't forget the book, Benedict of Bavaria. And in 2010, which uh, isn't that far away, we're going to have a special journey to Austria and Germany, which will center also on the birthplace of Pope Benedict. And uh, you'll get a taste of that Bavarian thing. That's part of our programs, which we do on journeys and pilgrimages um, throughout the year, mostly in the summer. And we have the conferences in the summer in which we're always excited to feature <laughs> the Pope and how he uh, leads us and, and how it, it fits into our life. Uh, and we're going to send you, just for the asking, a article here, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, A Simple Genius, by our author here, Brennan Purcell. And uh, a simple genius, fascinating combination of facts as this world-renowned theologian becomes an outstanding pastor and still is a simple man. It's a story which can, I think, excite all of us and give us direction for our own lives. So come see us at these conferences or in these journeys or connect us distant education or be a student here. Uh, we're just happy that you're part of our ministry. Till the next time, may the Lord bless and keep you, show his face to you and have mercy on you, turn his countenance to you and give you his peace. May the Lord bless you. He was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be with you. Amen. To receive a free handout on today's topic or to purchase a video of this show, call 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357. Email your request to presents at franciscan.edu. Or write to Franciscan University Presents, Franciscan University of Steubenville, 1235 University Boulevard, Steubenville, Ohio, 43952. Thank you.